0: Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove podcast network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast.
1: It all started when the first race car was bought and the first laps were run. Some drivers loved the speed and the feel of going up against their very best friends for track position in some field or some place where they decided to race in the very early days before NASCAR possibly was formed. Others wanted no part of beating and banging and clawing for track position and immediately had a new title to go by. That new title was called Car Owner. That's when they let someone with a lot more daring personality slide behind the wheel of their car to mix it up with the like-minded types in hopes of getting a checkered flag a little cash in their pocket and a kiss from the local beauty queen standing in victory lane maybe it was all about getting the kiss no matter team owners have been an integral part of nascar since the first time a field of cars drifted into the first turn of a dirt track maybe even before nascar was actually officially formed the cornerstone teams of NASCAR? Oh, that's an easy question to answer. Raymond Parks, Wood Brothers Racing, Petty Enterprises, Carl Kiekhaefer, Bondy Long, Smokey Eunuch, those are just a few that set the record books in the very early days of the sport. Many others followed, such as Holman Moody, Junior Johnson and Associates, Harry Renair Racing, Blue Max Racing, Robert Yates racing, Buddy Errington racing, RCR Enterprises, there's a bunch of these guys that formed their own race teams that were very, very successful. Then came future powerhouse organizations, such as Hendrick Motorsports, Team Penske, Joe Gibbs Racing, Roush Racing, that transformed into Roush Fenway Racing, and then as of recent, RFK Racing with Brad Keselowski as a team owner. They have been plenty of championship-caliber teams with top-of-the-line drivers that have held championship trophies in Victory Lane by season's end. NASCAR team owners are on the business end of their organizations, securing sponsorships and always making sure their drivers have the very best crew chiefs, crews, cars, and equipment possible to win races and, of course, those coveted titles. And with this episode number 70, we would be remiss if we didn't hold a special tribute to the late J.D. McDuffie, the beloved driver that fielded his own Cup Series cars for nearly 20 years on a shoestring budget before he lost his life in a crash at Watkins Glen, New York on August eleventh, 1991, while doing what he loved most. It's quite amazing how single car owners eventually transformed into multi-car team owners with not one employee, but hundreds of specialists and engineers and highly trained technicians and public relations representatives as they are today. But it all started with one team owner, fielding cars with one driver many, many decades ago. It all started with the one car, the one driver, and the dream of enjoying the feeling of winning and being first.
2: Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy, Ben White, and we're up to episode number 70. That's seven zero. That's right. 70 episodes we've had of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. And this one's going to be a very unique episode because we're going to be talking about guys who essentially they pay the bills but they don't always get a lot of the recognition. And we're talking about team owners and, so, you, know, so we, you know, NASCAR has obviously had a great history of team owners over the years, uh, both, you know, owners of the past, as well as owners of the modern day today. And we're also going to talk about one of the greatest names in the sport, Um, well known, uh, but, you know, he, he never, unfortunately had the opportunity to, celebrate in victory lane but he raced for over 600 races in nascar and that's the late jd mcduffie and ben i know was uh was uh, friends with jd so he's got a, a number of stories to tell about him but ben first of all great to have you uh back again i hope you had a good uh, holiday weekend i know we did um you know the looking ahead to where we're at in the season you know it's going to be a great second half of the nascar cup season but you know, we have got a lot of great stories to talk about today, uh, as we always do on a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. So let's kick it off with team owners. And again, we, you know, this is a very uh, kind of a broad uh, range because we're talking about uh, guys who used to be team owners, guys who kind of laid the groundwork for some of the owners of today, uh, you know, from a strategy standpoint, from an organizational standpoint, things like that. So, you know, let's let, first of all, Ben, in your opinion, has team ownership in NASCAR really changed over the last you know, 60-some years since NASCAR was founded in the late 40s?
1: Oh, yes, it sure has, Jerry. And i tell you, just a place to start, a guy who uh, became a team owner first was a lot of them were drivers because mm-hmm. they would get out on the racetrack and they'd say, okay, I'm going to be a driver. And they get out <laughs> there for about eight or 10 laps or less and say, nope, not going to be a driver. Yep. Now I'm a team owner because it wasn't exactly what they wanted. They they thought they uh, to set the woods on fire and and they get out there and they run and and they thought, boy, this is great. This is awesome. And then they see those guys come around them three wide and four wide. <laughs> and they're like, nope, this is not for me. Yeah, and yeah. so they pull the car in and they get a guy out there who's got his foot on the, on this on the wall maybe puffing on a cigarette and say you want to drive yep but that's pretty much the way their driving <laughs> career started in some of, some of those cases but yeah some guys are cut out for it some aren't and you know uh, one guy that comes to mind guy we all know richard petty uh, he was sort of destined obviously to get in a race car i actually he wanted to at 18 and nascar wouldn't let him do it till he was 21. And then his brother, uh, obviously Maurice Petty, mm-hmm. did run. A lot of people don't know this. He, actually Maurice ran 26 cup series races as a driver. And he decided nap, this is not for me. I'm going to stay in the, in the deep dark shadows and build race engines. And actually was one of the great, uh, engine builders and he was perfect, perfectly fine, st- uh, in the shop and on pit road and, and orchestrated, uh, Many, many of those 200 victories, all, most all of them actually mm-hmm. for, for Richard and those seven championships and those seven Daytona 500 victories, perfect, perfectly fine behind the wall and in the shop building those engines. So some guys thought they wanted to be drivers and they weren't. And, uh, they turned the reins over to others and, and the guys, uh, who wanted to be drivers uh, instantaneously became team owners and, mm-hmm. That's just kind of like how it worked in the early days. And, uh, uh, you know, they just knew it wasn't cut out for them. And so they went on and, and fielded cars for those guys. And a, lot of, a lot of those guys were moonshiners. Uh, they were farmers. They were daredevils, if you will. They were motorcycle racers. In the case of Joe Weatherly, he started off being a motorcycle racer. Uh, motorcycle champion actually, Mm -hmm. and turned his, uh, his driving uh, abilities over to stock cars and and actually won the 1963 uh, NASCAR championship. And believe it or not, I think he drove for like eight different team owners that year, but he ended up winning the championship in 63. So it's just a lot of, a lot of stories
2: about team owners and drivers along the way for NASCAR. Well, you know, I've got to ask you, I mean, you mentioned about guys who start off as drivers and then they you know, for whatever reason, decide to segue into an ownership-only role, and the guy that immediately comes to my mind—and I know there have been a number of guys—Junior uh, Johnson is one of the first ones I'm thinking about. The guy that really comes to mind first in my mind is Richard Childress. I mean, mm-hmm. here's a guy who, you know, he—he, he, uh, you know, well, and you know, another guy that comes to mind is also Roger Penske. I mean, they—they they were. Penske was a little bit better, uh, I guess, in the overall scheme of things, uh, you know, in the sports car racing, he was doing in in the things of that, but Childress, I mean, he, he was, he was an okay driver. I mean, he wasn't a great driver, but when a guy like a Childress decides that's it, I'm done, I'm turning the car over to somebody who can maybe potentially win, uh, you know, more than I can, what is the I mean, is, is there a significant transition period? I mean, do do these guys sometimes question themselves that, hey, maybe I shouldn't have given it up or I mean, or are they? do they reach a point where they just say, you know, I can do better as a team owner, raising funds, getting sponsors than I can as a race car driver? I mean, or is it a combination of all that stuff?
1: Yeah, I think in Childress's case, it was a, more of a financial decision than it was a driving decision. I, I don't think any of these guys, uh, enjoy stepping out of a race car. Cause that's what they, they were grow grew up wanting to do. And, and in, in Richard's case, uh, uh he was uh, running from 1969 to 1981, but he saw where he could get this young kid named Dale Earnhardt mm-hmm. uh, to drive his car. And Dale was coming off of winning the championship the cup series championship in 1980. He was rookie of the year in 79 cup series champion in 1980 and he just saw where he could get him to come into his cars and in as i said it was a survival situation i believe for richard because he could get him uh, dale could bring the wrangler sponsorship with him uh it was and he and he has even told me he said you know there was times i could see where uh you know junior johnson uh, had a really good sponsorship coming up and i could see where else a lot of these other guys were getting the great sponsors and for me to survive i needed not only great sponsorship but i needed a great driver uh you know dale wasn't happy where he was and and we just worked it out to where to get him in my car for the uh the remainder of the 1981 season there were 10 races to go that year Mm -hmm. so richard steps out puts dale in the car and at the end of the year, he said, he was just being honest with Dale and said, look, I, I don't have the equipment that I need to put you in a championship winning car yet, but he said, you go to Bud Moore's team for, for two years, 82 and 83. And he put Ricky Rudd uh, in his Chevrolet's. R- Richard did. Mm-hmm. And then in 1984, uh, Dale and Richard got back together. They stayed together and, until it's, uh. Uh, sadly, when, when Richard lost Dale in the car in 2001, uh, at Daytona, but that, and of course, before that, though, they won six more championships together, it, he just knew, you know, Richard had always been a really good businessman and, but he could just see the writing on the wall that I need to step out of this car as a driver, if I'm going to make this team survive. And so that was just a great business decision. But to answer your question, in that case, it was more of a financial decision to step away than it was, uh, anything else, because he just saw, I've got a chance to get this really good driver, this young kid named Dale Earnhardt. And of course, maybe it was fate. It was the ability to see the future, whatever the case was, but obviously it worked and and winning six more titles with Dale in the car uh, was certainly the way to go.
2: Right. Well, you know, there, back in the early days of NASCAR, you know, when it's first started in 48, 49, and then, you know, over the first 10, 15 years, you know, we saw a lot of um, legendary and, you know, to this day, legacy teams that are still around, Uh, you know, Petty Enterprises obviously became uh, Richard Petty Motorsports. Now it's uh, Petty GM um, GMC or uh, um, what is it? Petty... um, GMS, GMS. Thank you. I was yeah. drawn a blank in the last letter for some reason. Yeah, yeah that's um, all right. And then, you know, you also have the Wood Brothers, you know, the, uh, a similar situation where they were racers, then they became owners or mechanics or, you know, a combination of the two. Um, you know, they kind of like set the tone, if you will. Junior Johnson, another one that kind of he came a little bit later, but still, you know, they kind of set the tone for the where owners are today um you don't see that many today i mean i i'm trying to think of off the top of my head other than brad keselowski who's probably the most recent one where he you know is still continuing on as a driver but he's also has an ownership stake which is not with with what is now called roush fenway keselowski or rfk uh racing uh you know it's you don't you haven't seen too many drivers that have you know, ended their careers and became cup team owners, and, but we saw a lot of it early in the days, because it was, you know, it was survival, a lot of the guys, you know, they, they did race, and then they said, well, we're going to turn the wheels over, like you're saying about how uh, Childress did with Earnhardt, Um, you know, uh, Richard Petty, you know, he, he took over for, uh, well, he essentially, um, he didn't necessarily take over, but he, Followed in his father's footsteps, Maurice Petty, his brother, like you said, you know, he he became more of a uh, a genius, you know, under the hood as opposed to behind the wheel. Can you kind of you know, juxtapose, if you will, back then the segue, if you will, for a lot of guys who were drivers or maybe mechanics who then became owners, as opposed to today, because today it seems like all the owners that we see. Uh, with, like I said, the exception of maybe Keselowski, and maybe we may see this with Kyle Busch in the near future as well. If he ever decides to make a, you know, uh, build a cup team, you see kind of a disparity today where, you know, back then in the day, you know, in the 40s, 50s, into the 60s, maybe even to the 70s, you know, you had drivers become owners. Whereas now you're seeing guys who are primarily just owners. I mean, yeah, there have been a few instances of guys who used to race, like um, JD or I'm sorry, Joe Gibbs used to race. Uh, he was a drag racer early on. Um, Jack Rouse used to race early on in his career before he became an owner. But for the most part, today's owners are just that—they're owners. Whereas in the in the past, it was. You know they they started in one course of, and then they kind of changed gears and went to other directions as a team owner can you kind of talk about the juxtaposition of that
1: yeah sure well uh back in those days let's take uh let's take junior johnson for instance he won 50 races during his driving career and then he elected in 1966 at the end of that season to to do something else well when he's he built his entire life pretty much around uh, driving cars first and of course mm-hmm. running moonshine it's been very well documented that he did that and then he gets on the racetracks and uh and drives and wins 50 races including the 1960 daytona 500 and then he says well okay my time as a driver has come to an end what am i going to do with myself and so first he becomes a team manager he, he actually he did own some some cars uh, in the late sixties and after he retired, and then he became a team manager with Richard Howard when Bobby Allison was a driver. And then he bought that race team from Richard Howard. So he was a team owner, team manager, and then back to team owner again. Right. And so he wanted to just obviously be, uh, be part of a race team or be, uh, on the sidelines doing something and racing. So he elected to become a team owner. And as far as Richard Petty goes, uh. You know, Lee Petty was a three-time NASCAR, uh, grand national now cup series champion, uh, he had a bad accident in 1961 at Daytona, uh, that nearly cost him his life in one of the qualified races. He raced until 1964, but realized that he had lost his edge because of those injuries, and so, uh, he, he was first began as a team owner in 1949 when he started petty enterprises in a very small basically a a chicken coop type situation, just a shed is the way that started. Mm -hmm. And then knowing that Richard was going to continue on the the petty legacy, of course, he remained as a team owner and guided Richard, uh, in his career. And and the way Lee looked at everything was, this is the way we're going to make our living as a, as a family, you know, they had raised tomatoes and they had raised crops, uh, corn, and they have done everything, even rain moonshine. At one time they were doing anything they could to make a living. So his mentality was we are going to race to live. So we're going to have to win, uh, each time out. And that was, you know, there's no excuses. It's not finishing second or third is not what we do here. We're going to win and so he had to be you know kind of rule things with an iron fist if you will so that was the way they had to run petty enterprises and build it and build that legacy and so that was the thinking behind building petty enterprises and so team ownership meant that they were going to have to hire drivers or better yet maybe keep it in the family so the point I'm trying to make is that when you were, when you retired as a driver, there was really nothing else to do. And Richard has told me many times, it's like, I'm 85 years old. He just turned 85 July 2nd and a couple of days ago, he said, but what else could I do with my life? If I was when I retired in 1984, or excuse me, 1992, his last one was 84, mm-hmm. but in 92, he retired what am I going to do with myself? I've yep. got to be around race cars. I've got to be around racetracks. This is my life. And so many of those guys in the early days that began as drivers became team owners. That was their lives. So today's world is so different and so complex and so, so, so different than what it was then. You've got an army of engineers. You've got an army of technical people. The cars are so different. The sponsors are so different. Uh, the, the cars, I mean, the wheels, the tires, the bodies, everything is so, so different than what it used to be. And it's it's so amazing how, how much the sport has changed from say the days of when Ned Jarrett retired in 66, junior Johnson retired in 66 and take, take Ned Jarrett for instance, he could have been a team owner, but he went entirely a different direction by going into track promotion Mm -hmm. at Hickory motor speedway. Uh, he went into broadcasting, uh, with radio and television. And then when, uh, Dale Jarrett retired after becoming a NASCAR champion, he too went into broadcasting, uh, but stayed in the sport. So I guess there's other avenues that you could travel other than team ownership, but it's so, you know, there's there's a huge risk in in going into team ownership as well. And and we're going to get into that too. When we talk about some of the independent drivers that didn't win races, but they remained you know, in the sport as well. we will talk about some of those guys too, but being in the sport, when you have built your entire life around it, and you and I have both done that as well, as far as writing and being, uh, on the other end of the microphone or on the other end of the camera. So we've all have our roles in the sport in some fashion, but, uh, yeah, you, you just build your life around it and you stay in it for many, many years and, and you kind of hooked on it. And that's, we've all, I guess we're all guilty of that in some degree.
2: Exactly. You know, I said earlier about Kyle Bush and um Brad Keselowski as being the current uh owner drivers, if you will. I mean, Bush, um, obviously with his um his his truck series team, you know, he'll run an occasional race here or there. But one guy I forgot to mention, even though he's directly, but he's also indirectly uh um uh, an owner driver, if you will, he just drives for one team and owns another team. That's Denny Hamlin. I forgot to mention his name. Right. Right. Well,
1: I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that back up. because I really didn't address that. I meant to back in, in the nineties, you had, pardon me. You had Ricky Rudd. Pardon me. I'm sorry. Sorry. You had Ricky Rudd and you had um, the guys said, okay, I've driven for other guys and I, I, either love that team owner or I don't, and I don't have to answer to them. And, uh, I know, uh, what they want me to do and how they want me to drive. But you know what? I know I can do it better. And Bobby Allison's a good example of that. He would drive for other people, but there'd be times in in between driving for other people that he would drive his own car. Mm Mm-hmm. And the reason he would go in those directions, because he would just quite frankly, get fed up with the way that they would give him a hard time about certain things. And so he'd say, well, okay, great. You do it your way. I'll do it my way. And then there would be times he could win in his own car that, so you take the risk of, okay, I'll drive for you and I get a percentage of the winnings. Uh, or I'll drive for myself and get all the winnings, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, but I take the risk of crashing. In my own car and working all day and all night. And I fix my car and I got to hire people and I got to get it to the track. So you have to take the risk of having your own business or you get on an airplane and say, see you guys next week. You know what I mean? So, yep. It, you know, it, the headache factor is way higher when you have your own race team or your own business. So Rick, like I said, Ricky Rudd, uh, had his own car. I'm trying to, well, of course the great Alan Kowicki fielded mm-hmm. his own car and won a championship. And that was so interesting too, because I distinctly remember when he won the championship, uh, in 1992, he did it with a dozen or so guys. Yep, And everybody on these big teams that had 50 people or more like, holy crap. He just won a championship with a dozen guys and some corporate folks were saying, well, why did he do it with 12 and I'm paying you to hire 50. Yep. Yeah. You know, this is back before the 500 and some other people, you know, that we have today. Right. Right. But I mean, he did, he, he rocked the boat big time and some people were sort of sweating their jobs because he's like, he won this thing with nobody. And why do you need this guy? Why do you need that guy? And people were really starting to sweat their jobs a little bit. So. But yeah, Alan did it, and he had some good rides lined up. Matter of fact, he was going to drive for Junior Johnson uh, with a major sponsor, and and Alan thought he had that sponsor, and Junior kept saying, "Nobody, you don't. I got it." And <laughs> as it turned out, he didn't have it, and Junior did. And he said, "You're you need to drive for me." And said, "No, I don't. I'm going to do it my way." Yep, yep. And yep. he did it his way, and he won the championship. And some folks were like, Hmm. He did it. And sadly, we lost Alan at April 1st of 1993 in the airplane crash. But yeah, had he lived, I believe he would have won more championships. And eventually he would have stepped out of the car and he would have hired someone that would have driven just like him and see, that's why Cale Yarborough and June Johnson did so well with those three championships in 76, 77 and 78, because junior said repeatedly. Uh, The reason we do so well is because Kale drives just like I do Mm -hmm. or did. And, you know, that, and the chemistry between the two of them was great because Kale was like, I can't tell you why it drives this way, but if you give me a 10th place car, I'll win with it. (laughs) Because Kale, Kale was the kind of guy, he couldn't, he couldn't work on a race car. He didn't know why it performed the way it performed. And he couldn't tell a crew chief, yeah, take two pounds out of this tire or you know, lower the suspension over here on the left front. He didn't know how to tell somebody that, but he would say, I don't know what it's doing, he would try to describe it the best he could, but he'd say it doesn't matter just let me have it. And I'll, I'll win with it the way it is (laughs) that's what he would do. And that's the way kale was. And that's the way junior drove too. So that's why they did so well together.
2: Well, you know, and, and I, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way towards him, but there are drivers who became owners or driver owners that once they became, uh, you know, they began running their own ship, things didn't go very well for them. And the first guy that comes to mind is Darrell Waltrip. I mean, you know, he did so well working, driving for others, but then, you know, near the end of his career, when he decided he was going to go out on his own, um, he just did not have the success that he was used to. And I often wonder if part of the reason for the lack of success was because of all the other hats he had to wear as an owner. I mean, he couldn't just go out and drive. Like you said, you know, see you next week, you know, come back for the race and, and go on and then go back home. I mean, he had to deal with bills, you know, personnel, HR, payments, checks, all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And, you know, I mean, and he was not the only one. There was a, a number of guys who, you know, tried to become driver owners. And, you know, they invariably, I mean, other than a Kowicki, who's, I think, the last guy I can think of off the top of my head, who was a driver owner who won back in 92. I can't think of anybody else who has had success as a driver owner in the last, well, at least the last 30 years, maybe even longer than that.
1: Yeah, well, you're, you're dead on as far as that goes, as far as some drivers had too much, uh, the reins were too good in their hands. And then they, they would make decisions maybe on the racetrack and off. And then uh, what I'm trying to say is maybe a driver needs a crew chief in his ear to say, no, you're not going to come in and get tires this time. You're going to drive the car. And this is what we're going to do because when you have too much, uh, too much power inside the race car, sometimes you make the wrong decisions but you're right. You, you'd be the guy who who was wearing too many hats and you'd have all these responsibilities that, that you would have, um, getting the car to the track and making sure it's done and, and all the sponsor meetings and flying to this appearance, that appearance. And suddenly you, you've got so many hats on your head that, that when you got to the racetrack, maybe you're just tired. Maybe yeah. you're you just got so much going on mentally, uh, and physically, and then you get into these, uh, races where you're doing 500 laps at bristol or or 200 laps in the daytona 500 or whatever the case is that you're just worn out physically and mentally and you know come one you're talking about kawiki but uh you know thinking about ricky rudd he did win as a team owner of the breakyard 400 I believe it was 97, maybe I can't, I think think so. Yeah. So he did have some successes as a team owner in some of the big events, but, uh, it's rare, it's really rare to do that. And I don't think a driver, uh, you know, could do that today. I mean, it's just too hard to do that with what's going on today, but it was, it was a workable model. Back in, in the eighties and nineties, uh, but, but even then there's just so much responsibility that a driver would have to wear, like I said, so many hats to make it, make it work now back in way up, uh, in the seventies, you know, like I said, Bobby Allison did win some races in his own cars, uh, but he had some help, you know, he, but he did stay up all day and all night working on engines and working on his cars and getting them to the racetrack. And it, it was pretty hard on him. And especially in 1977, when he was trying to run the matador on his own and, you know, had a lot of mechanical issues with the car and engine issues and things of that nature. And by the time the season was over, he was pretty worn out yep. physically. You could look at photos of Bobby and, and tell how he'd lost a lot of weight, was having a lot of stomach issues and that kind of thing. And then he joined Bud Moore in 1978, and, of course, as it turns out, he won the 78 Daytona 500 in in Bud Moore's Fords, and that was a, a blessing, really, to just put that Matador stuff aside. Even though I was a huge fan of the Matador because it was the underdog car, and he won some races with Roger Penske in 75 in the Matador, but he tried it again in 77 on his own, and it was just too much, really, for one person to drive it and maintain it and try to get the cars running. And matter of fact, I have a photo here on my desk of, of Bobby, you know, feet and hands inside the engine compartment of a matador with well, the engine, you know, parts everywhere and, and tools everywhere. Again, he was the driver, but he was the engine man. He was the guy that drove it to the track and
2: a little bit of everything. It's just too much for one man to do. Well, you know, one thing I'm kind of curious, Ben, and I know we want to get into some of these other um, uh, owners, uh, you know, that we we want to talk about, but I'm curious though, uh, you know, we normally don't like to talk about modern day stuff, but I'm, I, the one thing that kind of intrigues me right now, since we're talking about owner drivers and that kind of thing, been a lot of rumors uh, over the last year or two that Denny Hamlin, when he essentially runs his course with Joe Gibbs racing, could he segue over 23 XI and race for one final season as an owner driver? And you can also kind of make that um, case, even though he does it part-time now uh, with his truck series team, if Kyle Busch ever does form a cup series team, could he leave Joe Gibbs racing and maybe put in a year or two as a driver owner uh for a cup team you know his own cup team and how would you know how do you think Hamlin and Bush would would um respond or uh you know how what kind of success or maybe lack thereof would they have because they wouldn't have to be worried about just being a uh, a driver they're going to be also a a team owner as well too you know more team ownership than they're already doing now they're going to you know they're going to be the point guy when it comes to ownership you know what i'm saying well
1: I've only got two words for him, Brad Kozlowski. Yeah, well, there you go. That's right. <laughs> I mean, That's right. you know, it's yep. it's a tough it's a tough yep. model now. Yep. It's it's almost too much for somebody to do now. Back in you know back in the '60s or '70s when it wasn't so complicated, when you could get a guy like a Bobby Allison or like uh, I don't know somebody back in those days that could field a car, and you didn't have all the stuff you know pushing you and you didn't have the major TV stuff and you didn't have the major sponsor stuff and you're trying to learn a new car. It was just an old against a Ford and a Ford against a Chevy and a Chevy Mm -hmm. against a Dodge and that scenario, I mean, you know, and you had a real, uh, stock rear end with a three or a four twenty seven cubic inch engine. You know what I mean? It was okay. You could probably do that in today's world two words brad k i just think that's the that's the what you're looking they're struggling to get that going and i think that's that sums it up the best
2: well i mean keselowski as we're taping this uh you know we're taping this before the atlanta race um you know he um he's in 30th position he his he has only two top 10 finishes and the top the best finish was a ninth place finish in the daytona 500 and other than that it's been an absolutely horrible season for him. I mean, who would have thought a guy like Brad Keselowski, former champion, he's won what 20 some races, I think in his career, that he would be so far down in the totem pole that he's almost obliterated this year. And I don't know if it really has that much to do with him taking on an ownership stake in the uh, Rosh Fenway, uh, Keselowski racing or what it is, but this is definitely not the year I'm sure that he anticipated when he was so eagerly looking forward to getting that uh, that role of driver and then also part-time owner. I mean, that's just it, it's 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 hard for me to imagine. I'm sure, like you and many others, what's happened to Brad Keselowski. But that's another story for another day. But let's let's get talking about some of the owners uh, in the past history of NASCAR, both the independents as well as you know the guys that. Uh, form their own team or maybe they uh, purchased their own team or things like that. I mean, it it, it really started way back you know, in the 40, late 40s when NASCAR was formed that guys invariably were team owners no matter what. And then eventually started seeing guys become team owners or people would come into the sport as owners only. And then the drivers would become essentially just drivers only as well too but you know we, we've we had a long history there's no question about it let's let's talk about some of those guys ben
1: oh sure well i the, the first guy that comes to mind is a prominent team owner you got to go back to 1949 uh our first champion uh, red buyer and he drove for a guy named raymond parks
3: mm-hmm.
1: raymond parks was a georgia um, businessman entrepreneur moonshiner if you will and he had, a, had some businesses in downtown Atlanta, really nice guy. I had the honor of meeting Raymond parks in the early nineties. Very, very, uh, very nice man, but he was, he didn't say a whole lot, but it, what struck me about him, no matter where he would go, it doesn't matter if he went down to the corner store for a, for a gallon of milk, he always wore a. a a jacket and tie and dress pants and mm-hmm. a fedora hat always yep. yep very well dressed very nice very sharply dressed man and so he would go to these racetracks in 1949 and this is the beginning of nascar very very beginning and there were times that he would bring three four cars to the racetrack at times when they really needed cars to compete and so a couple of his guys were, was Roy Hall and Lloyd C and he, he, he spelled his name, Lloyd did S E a said, it C like I see something
3: mm-hmm.
1: and he was very young. And this is kind of like, well, actually they raced a year or two before NASCAR was even formed, but red Byron was the first champion and, and r- drove uh, Raymond parks cars, but this is a time where you know nascar was kind of struggling for money and there were times when raven parks was funnel some money over to to bill france senior to sort of help him out but a, a quick story about lloyd c he would be running moonshine through dawsonville georgia dahlonega georgia and of course he knew the police officers through there. real small town this is bill elliott country mm-hmm. and he'd be coming through town and of course he you know had moonshine in his car most of the time. So he'd get pulled over and he'd say, Lloyd, I told you, and I told you, and I told you, this is a 30 mile an hour zone through here. You're not supposed to be doing 75 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, I know. And he said, well, it's a, it's a $10 fine and Lloyd would reach for his wallet and pull out a 20. He said, well, you go ahead and take this 20 because I'm going to come right back through here just a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> You know what those deals, and he was a great driver. Matter of fact, Bill France Sr. said he was probably the best driver he had ever seen. And they would race at places like uh, Lakewood Speedway and places like that down around Atlanta and various other short tracks. And uh, sadly, Lloyd C. lost his life in a moonshine deal that went bad, and he was shot by his uncle over a purchase of some sugar. That was put on his uncle's, uh, account at a local store.
3: Oh, wow. And
1: yeah, he was only like, uh, I want to say 19 or 20 years old and had he lived, he would have been a great, great driver. Sadly though, he lost his life in a little shootout. And of course, C did not have a gun on him at the time of the shot, but, uh, yeah, he was, he was, he lost his life at a very young age and, uh, but he was one of Raymond Parks's uh, drivers as was red Byron. And of course, Roy hall was, you know, a holy terror. And he was a driver that uh, he drove quite a bit for Raymond parks. And he was in and out of jail a lot, you know, for his moonshine antics to the point where there was a time when he was supposed to show up at a fairgrounds to race and the announcer, you know, said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to have to announce to you tonight that Roy hall. Will not be here tonight. And of course the crowd was, oh, I can't believe he's not here. I paid my ticket to see him. And he said, but I've been assured by the sheriff of this county that he will be out of jail by next week. And he will be <laughs> racing next week. These are all true stories. And <laughs> they're sure like, oh, okay. So he'll be back next week. So, you know, he was in and out of jail that much. And, and, but you know, he a heck of a race driver, daredevil types. And this is the kind of guys that. Raymond parks would take to the racetracks, but Raymond parks didn't run, but just a season or two. And then he went back to his businesses in downtown, uh, Atlanta, you know, novelty type stores that he owned, but he was one of the ones that propped up NASCAR in the very early days as a team owner. So if you wanted to attribute to, uh, say, a Hendrick motor sports of the forties, mm-hmm. it would be a Raymond parks, those, uh,
3: he's,
1: he would, but he was a very quiet man and, really enjoyed sitting down and talking with him. I believe we met at Atlanta motor speedway in 1991. And, uh, he is now, uh, someone that I just, you know, I think back a lot of the stories we talked about And you get him talking and he was just very soft-spoken and just recount many of those stories and of, of some of the moonshine runs and how they used to race at Lakewood. And, uh, you know, I just wish he was with us today. He passed away a few years ago.
2: Right. What about. You know, uh, obviously Raymond Parks was there, late 40s, early 50s, and then he kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, disappeared uh, to, you know, go back to his regular business mm-hmm. empire. But then we had some guys in the 50s and 60s that kind of, um, you know, rose to prominence as well too. Let's talk about about them as well too. Sure. Well, there was another
1: gentleman that came uh, to NASCAR. His name was Carl Kafer. He'd say Keek Heyfer is the way you said his last name. He was of German descent. He owned Mercury Outboard uh, Motors, designed them, and very prominent uh, financially. came into the sport and uh, had a fleet of Chryslers, and they were triple numbered cars 300, 301, 302, uh, solid white. He hired the very best drivers he could get Buck Baker, Speedy Thompson, Herb Thomas. Uh, several buck Baker, several good drivers, uh, Tim flock won championships in 56 and 57, uh, and very, uh, very strict on his drivers too. Matter of fact, he, the night before his races, uh, that he entered, he would not allow his drivers to sleep with her wives for fear that, uh, they might be too exhausted the next <laughs> day to race. That is a true story. And so you could not sleep with your wife. The wives could come along and they get their own hotel rooms, but they could not sleep with their husbands. So that was a rule. And uh, they would have, they would be dressed in very crisp white uniforms and their cars would be brought in with his Mercury outboard track, you know, trucks and they'd be covered where everybody else's trucks would, well, they didn't have trucks, actually, they would tow them behind their cars, you know, way ahead of, you know, of, of what the other competitors had way into the future, uh, you know, something that say, if it was the fifties, he was more into the seventies, if you right. will, as far as equipment and that kind of thing. Right. And, uh, they, they won a bunch of races over the next couple of years. Uh, and then. Uh, he abruptly ended his tenure in NASCAR, uh, in the, at the end of 57 saying that, well, I've won it all. And, and everyone's kind of against me because I've won it all. And uh, I don't think they're being fair to me. So I'm just going to leave pretty much the way it ended. And, uh, but yeah, he, he had all the money in the world, so to speak. And he came in and proved his point, but it was was more scientific to him. He wanted to see how these cars were going to run on a scientific basis and wasn't really about money. He wanted to see how they would perform. And his personality was about, uh, performance and not necessarily, you know, uh, for the thrill of winning, he wanted to see what it would be like to, to perform on the track, that kind of thing, you know, right. and, and he proved his point and he wanted to see how it would work and, and that that sort of thinking and, and he proved what he wanted to prove and that he packed up and went, and went away. And that was, that was the years of Carl Kiefer.
2: I have to wonder, and I say this in a f- totally facetious manner, but I can just imagine him talking to his drivers and saying, well, there will be no hanky panky with Viking <laughs> tonight, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: And that's pretty, pretty close. Uh, yeah. And, 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 you know, it's like I say, his champions were Buck Baker and Tim Flock. And I mean, he just came in and by storm, like a hurricane came in, won it all and and made everybody jealous and did what he wanted to do and left. You know, exactly. that's kind of way it was. He was very successful and uh, had the best of the best. Matter of fact, here's a side story for you. Bobby Allison actually worked for Carl KK uh, as a parts runner. And, you know, that kind of thing. Bobby was very young at the time and, uh, he worked in his, in his shop and, uh, you know, swept floors and like I said, ran for parts and did that kind of thing. And the funny thing was that they ran Chrysler's Bobby owned the 1956 Chevrolet convertible. Uh, I think it was a convertible. I'd love to have had that car now. And he, and Mr. Key Kafer would not let Bobby park his Chevrolet in front of his, uh, race shop because he ran Chrysler's and Bobby had to park his Chevrolet across the street because he wouldn't let him park because it, we ran Chrysler's here. We don't have Chevrolets. You have to park <laughs> your Chevrolet across the street. That's the right. true story. Right. Right. Well, the, after- three, the future three-time Daytona 500 winner
2: had to park his Chevrolet across the street. Well, you know, after after Carl Kiefer, you know, we kind of went into the, as I always like to call the golden age of NASCAR, when we started seeing a lot of other um, owners that either were drivers and then yielded to other drivers, or they built um, their their, um, empires on their own backs. And among the guys I'm thinking of are Holman Moody. Obviously, Richard yeah. Petty, Junior Johnson, the Wood Brothers. Let's talk about those guys in the the I mean, they all came at it from a different perspective. Petty was the driver owner. Uh, Junior Johnson was the driver and then became the owner. Uh, the Wood Brothers, you know, they they were racers and then they became you know, they they became the owners. Uh, Home and Moody, obviously, uh, they were more from the. Um, you know, a, a technical standpoint, if you will, kind of like a key cafer, but th- they all had success, you know, in, in it coming yeah. from, a, from a different perspective on, on all, each one of them.
1: Yeah, well, all right. So looking at Holman Moody, it was uh, Ralph Moody, who was a former driver, teamed up with John Holman, who was the businessman and Ford Motor Company put the two of them together and said, this is what we want you to do. We're going to provide for you a factory, if you will, and it it was actually located close to the Charlotte International Airport, which is no longer the the facility that they operated out of is no longer there. I think it's right in the middle of where one of the runways is now, but uh, it was a pretty good sized brick building. And if you can imagine uh, starting at one end and where you had parts and chassis and spindles and that kind of thing and by the time you got to the other end and a very abbreviated description uh you would have a red or blue or white or orange or black ford rolling out the other end and it's pretty much a race car factory like and an assembly line yeah assembly line yeah and they would build the race cars for people for themselves because they wanted to show what they would do on the racetrack but if if you wanted to build a car and buy a car and and you got the money, you could say you walk in basically the front office and say, I want a red 1963 for whatever Ford, and you could get it the way you wanted it and paint it the way you wanted it. And uh, or if you wanted if you already owned Fords and you wanted to repair the front snout or front clip or whatever the case was, it was an area where you could also get it repaired as well. So this was all orchestrated out of Detroit and it was uh, uh fix you know like I say you could fix it or build it turnkey and you could buy it there. And so from say 56 or seven till about nineteen seventy three, I want to say, then that's what happened and times were changing. Uh, by the time early seventies came along and, uh, that's about the time that it pretty much ended the stock car end of it. Uh, I'm pretty sure if I'm, I'm 99.9, percent sure, sure that I'm saying this correctly, Bobby Unser drove a number 41 Torino at Riverside, uh, in January of 1973, and I believe that was the last time that they fielded a car, but. David Pearson won three championships with them. Bobby Allison drove a home and Moody uh, for a couple of years. Of course, Fred Lorenzen, Dick Hutcherson, Sammy Johns. It was a who's who list of people that drove uh, Fords for home and Moody uh, for many years. And uh, of course, Fred Lorenzen was a top driver. Fireball Roberts drove for them. Sadly, uh, we lost Fireball in the early 60s when he crashed and burned uh, um, was burned in a crash at Charlotte Motor Speedway and then died on July 2nd of 1964, about six weeks after that crash. So, yeah, it was a a factory, a Ford factory, building uh, Ford race cars in NASCAR competition for about 12 years there. So that was a, a big, uh, factory in a time where there weren't big race shops like they are today. Uh, that was a huge, uh, huge race shop that in a time when they just weren't race factories, if you will, like, like today.
2: What about, um, now we've talked a little bit about Junior Johnson already, but what about uh, the Petty's, Richard Petty, you know, overtake or taking over the um, the Petty Enterprises empire from his father. And then of yeah. course you had the Wood Brothers as well. I mean, the, what I found really unique about those two organizations is that they were friendly. They were rivals, but they yeah. were friendly. You yeah, I And mean, you don't yeah. see that there that often. I mean, you know, especially back then, I mean, it was very you know, cutthroat, but these guys were, you know, uh, it was almost like, you know, if they needed a hand, you know, the other guys needed a hand, they'd come out and help them and vice versa, which is, you, saw, you don't really see it. You haven't seen it in NASCAR today. That's for sure. But I mean, you know, back yeah. then it was very common for the Wood brothers and the Petties to help each other out.
1: Oh, for sure. And they're, they're still very good friends. And, you know, I've talked, Eddie Wood is a very close friend of mine, as is Dale Inman. And, and of the two guys, that you see probably talking to each other the most this day and time is those two guys and, and Richard Petty and David Pearson were very good friends, even though they were rivals throughout the sixties and seventies and raced each other closely, uh, all the time during those times. And it was so funny because you could look up at the end of a race, whether it be Daytona, Charlotte, um, uh, on the short tracks anywhere and of course it'd be the 43 <clears throat> excuse me and the 21 at the end of the race 63 times they finished first and second mm-hmm. to each other and i think it was petty or pearson 133 of them and, and petty was 30 and um yeah they just they're still very good friends the Petties and and the wood brothers and just the very best of friends today. And, and they were always friends then they were rivals, friendly rivals, but just extremely close. And if, if one needed something, even though they ran Dodges against Fords and Mercury's, that'd be the first people that they go to and say, Hey, I need help. And I, this says a lot about their, their families. It says a lot about their, their personalities and. And again, like I say, 50 years later, you know, you could see Richard Petty walking into the Wood Brothers truck, or sitting behind the Wood Brothers truck today, and you know, just just awesome families and awesome people, and and that's what it says, says about them.
2: Well, I think a lot of them, uh, or a lot of the um, relationship between the Petty's and the Wood Brothers, uh, had a lot to do with the fact that they both came from essentially very similar backgrounds rural backgrounds you know uh, the petties from level cross uh, North Carolina uh, the wood brothers from Stuart Virginia um, you know they 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 grew up the hard way and yeah I, you know there they was just so much similarity in their their backstories that it almost seems like it, it, it was inevitable that they were drawn to each other as friends first and then eventually rivals but they always stayed friends though
1: you know, yeah Oh, yeah great friends. And, you know, the funny story real quick about Petty Enterprises, it started off basically a a small shop and then they needed a little more space. So they go out and win a race and then they come back and use some of the money to lay the concrete. Right. So Mm -hmm. they built walls, walls around the concrete. Well, I've heard Kyle Petty tell the story. Well, they needed a little more space. (laughs) So, (laughs) So they'd lay a little more concrete. So if you go over there and you were to go through the original petty enterprises building, which now it's Petty's garage, but it's just a maze. It's amazing maze. is what I call it. <laughs> right. Right, because right. It just, it just goes it goes, it goes. There's no real rhyme or reason to how it's laid out. It's just crazy. And to hear Kyle put, to, to hear Kyle tell it, it's pretty funny, but it, it's, it's up and down and up and down and all around it is. It's just like who laid this thing out anyway, <laughs> but you know, you look at it in the corners and you'll see initials of it'll say KP or RP or, or LP, you know, because that's who did it, Lee yep. or Kyle or Richard or MP for Maurice, but it's just, you know, somebody who, who does laying out concrete and buildings for a living would pull their hair out when they go look at it, but it's just, The way it's it's cool, the way they did it, because what the kid, when they, when they needed a little more space, Richard to go out and win at Martinsville or he go win at Charlotte or he goes somewhere and they would just use, you know, some of the money to do it. But Kyle tells still tells the story of how Lee had laid out some concrete and it wasn't dry yet just for fun. He gathered up all the neighborhood dogs (laughs) and he ran the dogs through the concrete and. You know, just for kicks and giggles, and of course that didn't go over well with grandpa Lee and, you know, he had to go find some more concrete, smooth it all back out again. Kyle thought it was pretty funny, but Lee didn't think it was all that funny, you <laughs> know, right, right, right. but you know, just happy. And that's the thing, you know, the, the Petties in the woods, both are just really down home people, you know, and, and talking to Eddie recently about that, you know, family and working for. Uh, the the family the whole time working for the Wood Brothers Racing said so even when I, in high school I never had aspirations to do anything else because I knew I was going to be work, working for this race team and I'd see Mario Rendretti walk through or I'd see AJ Foyt walk through or Fred Lorenzen drove for us once and Kale drove for us. it's like it's like yeah man but that was the who's who list of all these awesome motorsport stars you know Donnie Allison and mm-hmm. all this like Well, I know, but they, they just drove for us and it was, we didn't, we didn't think of ourselves as being famous. We just thought this is what we do. And, you know, I, I just think it'd be cool just to be standing around and all of a sudden all these hot drivers walk through and, you know, these superstar drivers walk up and lean up on the fender of a car and you know, they're going to drive for you next week. we just grew up doing that. We didn't, and that's the cool thing about the wood brothers family or the wood family and and the petties they they have never ever come across as being pompous or uppity or Mm -hmm. famous and they're they're the most famous families in motorsports history but they they're just as down to earth as you could ever imagine and i admire that
2: about them i really do exactly Let's let's move on to the 80s and 90s. And I mean, you know, we had the big race, the Daytona 500 in 1979, it was televised live. I mean, uh, two thirds of the country was paralyzed by a snowstorm and people were looking for something to do. They tuned in and that became the, arguably the biggest race in NASCAR history because it kind of laid the groundwork, if you will, for the, the, uh, the second golden age of NASCAR, if you will, you know, the 80s, 90s, even into the early 2000s. And that also coincided with, uh, you know, the, the next generation of, of owners, if you will, um, you know, Richard Childress obviously retired, uh, after the 81 season, uh, or eighty I guess it was 80 or 81, I guess it was, and became a full-time owner. You also had Rick Hendrick came into the sport in 82, 83. Um, you know, Jack Roush eventually came into the sport after being a, a, a noted, uh, racer himself. Joe Gibbs was a drag racer. And then he started, uh, actually he had an NHRA team back in the uh, early to mid nineties. And then he eventually got into NASCAR as well too. But you know, the, the eighties and the nineties, uh, really, I think was when you started seeing a lot of different, um, you know, primarily owners only. And the, the driver part went away. Another guy that comes to my mind immediately, and I'm actually working on a story about him for NASCAR.com. They'll be coming up soon was Kenny Bernstein. I I think if I'm not mistaken Kenny is the only driver in motorsports history to ever own a Cup team, a NHRA team which he also drove for uh, obviously, and also an IndyCar team for 10 years in a row straight. Three different uh, major teams, three different major sports uh, racing se- series. I can't think of anybody else that's ever done all three of them all at the same time. But you know that kind of shows the you know the the illustration of how the 80s and 90s and again even into the early 2000s uh you know the ownership became and became such an important factor i mean yes drivers were always going to be one of the most important elements but owners became you know, almost on the same par, same level, because of, you know, the, the uh, sponsorship became so much more important, you know, uh, you know, getting the right people became so much more important. It was just a, 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 a whole brand new evolution of the ownership game, if you will.
1: Yeah, sure did. And uh, you're right about that. Uh, you know, Kenny had his fingers in three different types of auto racing uh, consecutively like that. And it's a, it's an interesting fact, but yeah. And I think the eighties was inviting to a lot of team owners, if you will. And, you know, and the one that really comes to mind for me is of course, Rick Hendrick. And that's an interesting story because a lot of people don't realize that, you know, 1984 was the, the first year as a, a cup team owner and Richard Petty was going to be his driver. He, he was. They were very close to signing Richard Petty to be his driver. And, and Richard honestly was afraid to take the the leap of faith because he was afraid he, Rick Rick Hendrick, wasn't going to make it. And so he backed out at the last minute and Tim Richmond was going to be his driver originally in the, in the number five car. And Tim just couldn't, you know, make up his mind. Do I want to go with this guy? His name's Rick Hendrick. I don't really know him all that well. Should I do it? And so as the story goes, Jeff Bodine was at the original city Chevrolet dealership and waiting in the lobby of all places <laughs> and, and so he's sitting there and he's like, okay, I really want I want, really want this ride and and Rick comes out of his office and said, well, I got this guy named Tim Richmond waiting on this ride and And I'm waiting on him to call me back. He said, well, that's okay, Mr. Hendrick. I'll just sit here and see if he's going to call you back or not. And so he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. He said, well, I guess Tim's not going to call me. So I'll just go ahead and hire you for the ride. And that's the (laughs) way it worked out. But, and then the rest as it says history, but, but yeah, you know, nobody wanted to go with him. And, uh, and those, that first year in 84 was, uh, according to Rick was pretty frightening because he only had two cars. And it was in a boat shed, which is, by the way, still on the property of Hendrick Motorsports. He had bought a couple of engines and an old crusty guy named Harry Hyde, who was trying to get his career restarted again. And I mean, he, you know, so they get to Daytona and his car, the number five car, is just not running good at all. Seven cylinders. He's out there running with all these people. And he's like, what have I gotten myself into? You know, I don't know if I got the money to run this team or not, and maybe I've got egg on my face. And so, you know, by the 10th or so race of the year, he's basically telling Jeff and Harry Hyde, you know, what, if we don't win something soon, I'm going to have to close the doors. This is after 10 races. This is after the first year, uh, in the middle of the first year. Mm-hmm. And so Rick is sitting in a church service on the Sunday, April 15th, I think was the date. And uh as it turns out, he gets word later in the afternoon that Jeff Bodine has won the race at Martinsville. Well, that was a prayer answered.
2: God's and, a Rick Hendrick fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, and that saved him. And uh, as in the lay, later on, they ended up winning the race at Nashville, but I mean, they were down to pretty much, they didn't have two nickels to rub together there for a while. I mean, it was, it was getting pretty bad and they did have a sponsorship, but I mean, they just didn't have any hope of the thing moving on any further. And had they not won that race at uh, Martinsville that April, then things were not looking up. And as you know, now they've won more than any other race team. Uh, in NASCAR history, they've surpassed rich or petty enterprises. They were at the two hundred and sixty eight mark at the time. I'm not sure how many they have now, but they are the winningest team in NASCAR history. and Lord knows how many championships they've won now and you know the, as I say the rest is history. but hendrick motorsports is is pretty solid. Let's just say it that way. and uh, but yeah, in that first year it was it was very touch and go in the first ten or twelve weeks and Uh, with the single car and uh, things were just not looking very promising in that first 1984 season and uh, they've come a long long way since that day
2: right you know one other guy that we didn't mention was Robert Yates I mean he was such Mm -hmm. a a major factor as a team owner as well and sadly we lost him a few years back Um, but he was also a big Uh, factor in the 80s and 90s as a team owner because he brought on you know some great drivers won some championships and and, um, you know he had uh, Davey Allison race for him um, uh, Dale Jarrett raced for him I mean uh, just a uh, essentially almost like a who's who of drivers that raced for him but Yates was also the kind of guy that between him and his son Doug They were a little bit more on the unique side because they, you know, they weren't afraid to get their hands dirty. Doug became one of the most, uh, you know, noteworthy and successful engine builders in the business and remains to the that way to 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 today. But I mean, Robert Yates, uh, talk about you know the the um, uh, the significance and the success that he had and the impact he had upon the sport as well too. Oh my gosh, yeah,
1: Robert Yates is such a fascinating guy. Someone I love dearly and, you know, we wrote a book together several years back and, and I just, oh my gosh, just thought the world to him. But yeah, he was just a, a, a very down to earth guy and he worked for home and Moody, as we talked about before, and then worked for Bobby Allison at die and, and just a great engine builder, what built Bobby's engines with, uh, Bobby Al- or, or junior Johnson back in 1972, and won 10 races. Just a a phenomenal engine builder. And then when it came time to uh, maybe pull the trigger on building or buying a team, he bought it from Harry Rainier, and Davey was already driving for Harry Rainier. He replaced Cale Yarborough with that team. And, you know, he he talked to Davey long and hard about, you know, should I buy this race team? And it was in 1989 and Davey just told him, said, Robert, you can do this. You, You can. You know, you will be a great team owner. You're already a great engine builder
3: mm-hmm.
1: and between the two of us, I know that we can have a great deal of success together. It's just going to be a wonderful deal. And I don't know why you're hesitating on it. And he said, I just don't know how great a team owner I would be. He was very humble and, and his, and talking with him and, and his thinking and, you know, just extremely humble, but very good Christian man. Good, just a great guy. And so Davy said, look, if you'll, if you'll do this, I will end, I will start my career with you. I'll end my career with you. I won't go anywhere else. Me and you will be together. And they were like a father-son combination. And, um, uh, and it really, I gotta tell you, it really, really hurt Robert. When we lost Davy. it was devastating. It's not even the right word. It just, when Davy died in the helicopter crash in July of 93, it really, really hurt. Robert and, uh, but yeah, they, they just made such a great combination, but Robert, if I could describe him talking, it was so funny because if you went to Robert and said, Robert, can you tell me how the car is today? 45 minutes later, he would, you know, he would, he would end the sentence. He would, you know, he was so, he would tell you everything and go all the way around the world to answer the question. And when we wrote the book together, it was so funny because I'd say, okay, Robert, now listen, I don't need 45 minutes on this. I need maybe a couple minutes. And he'd laugh real hard and say, okay, you got it. Yeah, I got it. And then he would <laughs> give me 45 minutes, but anyway, I just loved him dearly. He was a great guy, but they had a lot of success together and won a Daytona 500 together in 92 and one bunch of races together. And, but yeah, he and Davey were really close and, and the thing about Davey he would either win big or crash big especially in 92 and they lost the championship in atlanta by just a few points and mm-hmm. ernie irvin got into davy about halfway through the race and it wasn't ernie's fault he just blew a tire and just happened to be davy to the right of him and and uh, they crashed but davy was very uh very professional about it and said hey we'll get him next year and Unfortunately, Davey did not live to see the championship for '93, but uh, he, like I say, passed away about uh, midway through the '93 season. But uh, anyway, great guy, great uh, team owner, and we miss him. We lost him to cancer a couple of three years ago, and just a great, great man.
2: Exactly. Now, we want to talk a little bit about J.D. McDuffie, but Ben, if you'll um, um, humor me in, in the way I want to do this, uh, we always do the car number that's associated with the episode number of a lifetime in NASCAR. So this is episode 70. We're going to talk about car number 70 because J.D. McDuffie figured so prominently with that car. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, you know, who was the first driver that ever raced the number 70 and i've got some other drivers that um you know did uh compete in that car you know either for one off two off what have you and then we're going to circle back to talk about jd mcduffie because i think that he he played a very significant role in that number 70 but let's let's talk about who raced the number 70 for the first time ever in nascar history
1: Uh, okay i sure will actually it came uh, on February 5th of 1950, and it's a name that we've mentioned many times, Buck Baker was driving, uh, that day and it came at Daytona beach and road course against February 5th, 1950. Uh, he was driving a Ford. He finished the race in ninth after starting the race in ninth. Uh, but it was in car number 70 and it was the first race of the 1950 season, but yeah, um, Buck Baker was the first driver to to carry the number seventy in a NASCAR competition.
2: Right now, the number seventy has a very unique history. Seven hundred and sixty one starts, zero wins. I think this is what the third or fourth uh, episode in a row that we've done that there have been no winners in the high sixties mm-hmm. or even into the now into the seventies that you know never won a cup race, but no wins. 14 top fives, but I found this part of the stat line very interesting. 761 starts, zero wins, 14 top fives, but 119 top 10s. So it was a very competitive car to have that many top 10 finishes. Did have one pole. Obviously, like you, obviously, like you said, Buck Baker was the first driver to ever drive that car. Other guys who of, of note whose names uh, fans will recognize, Cotton Owens, Wendell Scott, Johnny Souter, Jeremy Mayfield, Ken Schrader, Jason Leffler, Tony Rains. And the last driver to win the, or to race the number 70 was in, it was, I'm sorry, it was in 2009 and that was Mike Skinner. But the guy who was most associated with number 70 was JD McDuffie. And, you know, between he and uh, Dave Marce, Marcus, they um, they had probably the most, you um, unique history in the sense that they raced so many races hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of races yet they never were able to reach victory lane in a cup car let's talk about JD McDuffie because he you know had a uh, you know he was a great driver he just couldn't get to victory lane. And then, you know, we, we sadly lost him. And I know you want to talk about that as well too. Yeah. So
0: let's talk about. Yeah.
1: JD. Well, i tell you what, JD was one of the coolest guys and we were so saddened to lose him in a crash at Watkins Glen, New York on August 11th, uh, 1991. I was not at the race that day, but I was watching uh, when it occurred mm-hmm. on television and uh, a little bit of background about JD, he started 653 races. Uh, he had 12 top five finishes during his career, 106 top tens. And that's where a lot of those top tens. I was going to say, from, yeah, that's almost mentioned. all the
2: top fives and top tens were his. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Yeah.
1: And uh, he started his first race in 1963 on July 7th at Myrtle beach. And of course his life ended August 11th, 1991. He was involved in a, a two car crash uh, on the fifth lap of the race at Watkins Glen and his close friend, um, Jimmy Means was also involved in that crash, but not sure if a wheel broke off, not sure if the brakes uh, went away when that wheel broke, probably did. But he got into uh, the fence. I'm not, I don't recall what turn it was, but uh, the car flipped. And of course, uh, like I say, Jimmy was involved in that. Um, he suffered some uh, severe head injuries in the crash. And, uh, yeah, and, but, you know, talking about some good things about JD, he didn't, he was from Sanford, North Carolina, and he didn't have a whole lot to say most of the time. So like one time I remember a funny conversation I had with him. I, I did interview him quite a bit and. You know, it didn't have a lot to say. Anytime you talked to him, he had a big smile on his face. Most of the time, he did not have a big sponsorship budget at all. He, he, his sponsor was rumple furniture company in Sanford and so a few other smaller sponsors, but he, he just raced on a shoestring budget most of the time, but I noticed one time we were at Richmond fairgrounds raceway, the older track, not the mm-hmm. one where we have now, but the smaller track. And he was in that num- blue number 70 Pontiac at the time. He always ran number 70 blue cars. I asked him, he had five, half a Tampa, uh, cigars in his pocket of his Driver's suit and have a Tampa did sponsored part of the time. Also, I said, JD, what is the deal, buddy? And this is back in the open face helmets. I said, What's the deal, man? What's the deal with those five cigars? He said, Well, let me tell you. I had the eastern North Carolina accent. I said, Well, let me tell you. I said, if I get to the fifth cigar, I've had a pretty good day. <laughs> <laughs> He'd chew on him. He'd chew on him with the race car. And it never lighted. He'd just chew on him. He said, if I get to the fifth cigar, I've had a pretty good day. And I just never will forget that. And so he'd chew a a cigar every hundred laps. (laughs) And, uh, that was JD. And, you know, in in the night before the race at Watkins Glen, he had never won a cup race, but he went to Shangri-La Speedway close to the Watkins Glen. He won that race. It was a short track race, a hundred lap race, 150 lap race the night before the Watkins Glen cup race. And he ended up winning that thing the night before. And some kind of deal he had put together with a, with a track and he drove somebody else's car and he finally won one. And then of course the next day, sadly, he lost his life in that crash. But I'm telling you, he, he did not have a big budget. He had old, what they call old blue and old blue was the truck that he he took the car on everywhere he went and i'm saying he went to texas with that old blue he went to sonoma with old blue i mean that thing was a mid-70s chevrolet wedge truck when i say wedge that's the back part that he hauled the car on not Mm -hmm. what everybody else had it was an old truck well as it turns out after his passing they put the remainder of the car on the back of Old Blue and Junior some of Junior Johnson's guys drove the car transporter back to Sanford and it broke down on the way home.
2: Oh no.
1: And no. they had they had to do some work on it to get it back home. That's how bad it was. And so my understanding is when they had a an auction at the shop a few years after his passing Kenny Schrader bought it and as part of his collection to preserve it and to save it
3: mm-hmm.
1: as so it wouldn't end up in a junkyard somewhere. And I think he spent some money on it and fixed it, you know, in JD's honor to, to fix old blue and keep it. But my understanding was something went wrong with it and they had to repair it on the way home to get it home. But, uh, you know, but I admired JD because he just worked so hard to get, to make his dream of racing come true and the thing about it if he didn't qualify for a race you never saw him upset you never saw him down he would just load his car and he would smoke a a cigar and just load up and go home and i just admired him so much for his dedication and integrity and but anyway, he was, he just never said much. He, he had that Eastern North Carolina draw and he's when you talked to him in an interview, he'd give you a few sentences about whatever you were talking about, but he wasn't very long-winded. He just wouldn't, he wouldn't offer much very humble, but he would finish races. I mean, he would, you know, he, he did okay, but he gave it all ahead. And we were so saddened
2: when we lost him on August 11th, 1991 in that crash. You know, I never had the honor to talk to JD, but I remember reading something about his his uh, career, and sure, every driver wants to win at least one cup race in their career, if not 10, if not 100, but, you know, in a way, JD, from what I remember reading, uh, as his career went on, and like you said, he made 600 and some starts in the Cup Series, um, he kind of wore the... Uh, or, you know, the fact that he'd never won a cup race, he he kind of wore, uh, wore that almost like a badge of honor, but in a good way, a good natured way, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I, I can't remember the exact phraseology or what he said uh, uh, in this one story, but, you know, he, he had a really good comeback and I, it's escaping me right now, but, you know, it was like, you know, we always try to get him every single race, and you know the next one's going to be the one, or just yeah. something to that effect. I mean, yeah. he, the fact that he that he could, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, make light of himself for not winning says a lot about the kind of guy he was as well. Too, I mean, like you said, he most of his answers were ten word answers or so because he was kind of a shy but also very humble kind of guy. But that he would, you know, he'd be able to, you know, make light of the fact that he never got to victory lane still, you know, it, it never impeded him and never stopped him from racing. That was his love. That was what he did. And, and he did it to the best of his ability, you know, no matter what.
1: Yeah, he did. He did. And, and that's what I admired so much about him. He just never would give up and and everybody in the garage loved him. And if he needed a new water pump or if he needed something he'd be at the racetrack and something broke people would help him out you know they would make sure that he didn't go home because of some silly hundred dollar part
3: mm-hmm. or
1: fifty dollar part that he drove all the way to somewhere people would make sure that he had what he needed and i do remember in 19 i believe it was 1978 he did win the pole position at dover and he was on mccrary tires because mccrary had a little deal with him that they had you know something some type of financial deal with them and Mm -hmm. he was running mccrary's and he ended up winning the poll i remember that and just everybody loved jd and it was i can't even describe the sadness everybody felt and it was pretty obvious that it was a traumatic uh fatal uh, crash that he had suffered and they announced during the race uh, that day that he, he had lost his life before the race even ended they they announced he had lost his life and Man, talk about the sad, sad day um, when we lost him. But I'll never forget the smile, and I will just never ever forget that what he said to me about the cigars. I, you know, I'll <laughs> always remember that. Just how he said that if if I can get through five, six, chewing on five cigars, if I get to the fifth cigar, it's a good day. And I just thought, you know, that's a that's a glass half full answer right there. You know that. <laughs> Because he would he would always if you watched him on a short track he always had that cigar in his mouth and he would chew on him all through and a, a cigar every hundred miles is what he would do, what he right. would do I just thought that was a great answer I you know I, I just loved the guy but very quiet very shy and he didn't boast about anything he just he was happy to be part of the show and that that he wanted to race as long as he could as long as the money was there to race that's what he would do and he i think he knew that the day was going to come when he couldn't afford it but he wanted
2: to do it as long as he could right yeah. you know and and you know before we wrap up the show for today ben um i see a lot of similarity between jd mcduffie and um um uh, now i'm drawing a blank on his name um um Junie McJunie, uh, uh, Dunlavey, yeah, Dunleavy. because Junie, as a team owner, you know, since this show is about team owners, he stuck in it for you know, from the start of NASCAR up until uh, what into the 90s, if I'm not, or actually well, no, into the early 2000s, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think
1: he was, uh, yeah, he did. And and Junie was the same way, Junie loved it, and Junie knew that the chances of winning was pretty slim. Matter of fact, the day that he and uh jody really won at dover in 19, 1981 J- jody told me he said junie refused to look at the scoreboard because <laughs> he saw <laughs> he saw where the number 90 his car was on top and he radioed to junie and said hey are you looking at the scoreboard and he, he just he wouldn't answer him because he did, he just didn't want to see it he didn't he was he was afraid he was going to jinx it right because th- that's the only race that junie won in god what 800 starts and they just happened to be in position and he won, but see Junie loved racing. He's he, he wanted to win, but he knew the chances were slim, but he just loved it so much and going on, all the way back to 1950, Junie had a car, actually two cars in the first inaugural Southern 500 in 1950 hmm. and Junie's team, Junie was the guy real quick, Junie's team they would go out and get the tires off the real cars in the in the infield to run on the car they were running in the 500 because the tires were wearing out that day and genie would put the go put the cars on blocks and borrow the tires and put a note on the car and say hey we'll bring your tires back (laughs) i mean (laughs) that's how far that's how far back judy would go you see, so Anyway, just all these fun stories. But you know, we'll we'll borrow your tires. We'll bring them back. We'll pay you for them when we get after the race. <laughs> that kind of thing. So anyway, I mean, Judy was another great, great guy, and we've been blessed with some really fun, fine, fun people in this business that just love the race, and they're just fun to hang out with, and all the stories we could we could fill eight hours probably of just fun, happy stories about team owners in this sport. That and we we need to do another team owners show sometime. I could just we could do it.
2: It'd be fun. I agree with you. I mean, that and that's like you say, I mean, that's one of the reasons why the owners uh, stay in this sport for so long. I mean, you know, you look at the current and, and in closing here. I mean, you look at the current crop of owners, I mean, virtually everybody, uh, you know, the major owners, you know, the the Hendrick, the Childress, the Gibbs, um, you know, they have been around. For 30, 40, even 50 years as team yeah. owners in in some instances. Uh, Richard Petty's been around since 19, you know, the, the late 50s and, and he became a right. team owner once you know he's he took uh, uh control of petty enterprises from his father Lee. So yeah. you know, and there look, been guys have been doing this for over 60 years as a team owner. Well, look
1: at the Wood brothers, they started yeah. in 50, you know, in and technically in 53. Right. Glenn Wood started, they have they hold the world. I mean the guinness world record for the longest uh, team ownership in nascar so since 1953 they've been here and they will continue to be here so i mean they you know ha, they've been here a long long time and they will continue to be so yeah this that's the way of life that's what they they don't know anything else like the petties. they don't know anything else to do with themselves so it's wonderful that they want to be here For many more decades to come, they've left it to, when they go, their children will be running Mm -hmm. with brothers
2: racing the same way with, you know, with, with the
1: petties, I feel like.
2: Well, same way with you know, with Rick Hendrick. I mean, he's obviously got a succession plan in place. Rich, uh, Roger right. Penske has a succession plan. Joe Gibbs has a succession plan. Rick Rich, uh, Richard Childress has. I mean, you know, almost any major owner, team owner, Jack uh, Roush obviously he brought in uh, Brad Keselowski as a, as a part owner uh, sure. to eventually you know go gear up towards the future. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's almost like once you become a major owner, you're in it for life. You know, there's no question about it right for sure and and that's a good plan to
1: have because you got to think about richard childress uh you know is well i don't know i think he's like pushing maybe 78 80 and i don't know that but i mean you know richard petty's 85 and roger pinsky's what 81 84,
2: 84 i think yeah yeah
1: so you got to think about okay they're sadly they're not going to be here forever and there there needs to be a a plan in place for these teams to continue on, and there there is, and and it's one you know it's wonderful that uh, they will continue. Joe Gibbs, I'm not sure of his age, but I know that Coy, uh, his son, will continue on, and and his family will continue on. So yeah, uh, these that those types of con- uh, con- conversations need to continue, and, and we need to move on forward because th- that's the
2: cornerstone of the sport is of course the team owners and we need to move on with that for sure well, well i mean look like rick hendrick last year i mean he brought jeff Hendrick or jeff gordon rather in as his number two uh yeah. with the with the um uh the plan eventually for jeff to uh, assume um uh, you know the chairmanship of uh, hendrick motorsports uh you know once richard i mean once Rick either retires or sadly passes away. So, I mean, you know, you, you want to have a, a sustainable plan for the future that, you know, like you said, these guys can go on for another 20 or their organizations go on for another 20, 30, 40, 50 years, maybe even yeah, forever, sure. you know, that kind of thing too. Yeah, so. Sure. And yeah. And that's just it's a smart
1: business. And, you know, it's something to think about uh, for down the road and it's, it's inevitable that, Change is going to have to come down the road, and it's just good that those plans are in place, yeah.
2: Well, maybe we better start working on a succession plan for ourselves. You never know that
1: kind of thing, too. Yeah, when we get to uh, podcast number 458 of a lifetime of NASCAR, maybe my grandson, Rex White, will be... Uh, in a position no no he's gonna be a seven time cup series champion what am i thinking
2: so, that's right exactly exactly go. so all right my friend great show as always and um you, you taught me you you always teach me so much in in every episode and you know there was just so much i was not aware of you know of a lot of the owners especially those guys you know uh that kind of preceded my time you know like a um you know um looking back in the for, the 40s that raymond parks you know the 50s with carl cake and and you know uh Uh, Holman Moody. I mean, I was born in in 57. I'm 64 now. But I mean, I always learned so much from you. So thank you ever so much for, you know, taking me to school again. And this is the best free education a guy can get, I'll tell you right now. Well, thank
1: you, Jerry. I enjoy talking about this stuff. And I hope our listeners do as well. And it's just fun to talk about history of NASCAR and and a lifetime of NASCAR. And and tell your friends, We, we just enjoy talking about this stuff. And it's a fun hour, hour and fifteen. It's just fun to talk about it, and we need to preserve the history of our sport. And the more we talk about it, that's what we're doing. So uh, just tell your friends we we have a fun fireside chat. Even though it's 95 degrees in July, we still have <laughs> <laughs> we still have fun talking about it. So well,
2: you know, because you, you actually a lot of fun. All, all kidding aside, you said something that uh, that really just struck me. Maybe we need to talk to uh, the NASCAR Hall of Fame and have them, you know, uh, compile all of our podcasts to date, as well as all the podcasts to come, because what a great resource that would be for them to have, you know, uh, if people want to research the history of NASCAR, I mean, you have just got some such an incredible recall and history of the sport. I mean, uh, I mean that in all uh, humbleness, and I mean that in all sincerity, that, you know, this would be a great resource for the NASCAR Hall of Fame to have, you know, talking about uh, the way it was back in the day. And uh, I can't thank you enough because, like I said, I learn something every day, every episode we do this in. So, well, thank uh, you. Thank you. Well, it be fun. All right. Well, Episode 70 is now in the books. We go to Episode 71 next time. I hope everyone had a, a great holiday and, um, you know, wish you uh, to stay cool in this uh, very hot summer as it's turning out to be. But, um, you know, Ben and I will be back with Episode 71 next week. And so for my buddy Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Thanks ever so much for listening to a Life and the NASCAR podcast. We'll catch you next week right here on A-L-I-N. Take care, everyone.